Uh, we now move to this part of the service where we look in the book. Lord, we need your word to speak to us. We need your word to be effectual to us. We need, Father, to know our Savior deeper. We thank you for the grace we have tasted, and we ask for more. Now I pray that uh, you would help me to speak clearly, effectively. I pray, Father, your word and your son would come forward, and that's all we would see. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've shared this several times. You're probably even tired of me talking about it. Uh, But uh, I did grow up hearing the gospel. I had good uh, Sunday school teachers. I had wonderful grandparents uh, who were very good at making sure that I heard the gospel. Uh, But I've also shared with you that I did not become a Christian until I was 16. Up to that point, I really didn't attend youth group. I had never been a part of anything like what we have with Awana. But somehow, someway, I kind of immediately knew that what God wanted in my life was for me to be a pastor. A lot of people would describe this as a, a calling. I can remember, really, the, the context in which it came. Our youth group had a uh, youth Sunday coming up. I went to a church of around 300 at the time. So good-sized youth group, and so we, everybody was assigned uh, a spot, and then they were asked if anybody wanted to preach. And if you wanted to, you had to turn in an outline. And I remember that whole week I worked on this outline. Uh, I'll tell you right now, it was absolutely terrible. Uh, but somehow I made it to the final two. And, and after getting to do that, there was something very clear. Uh, and I, I, I say, you know, in my high school yearbook, my senior year, it says in future occupation, it says, Pastor, I just kind of knew. But then I got distracted. I had a girlfriend at the time, a good-paying job. Upon graduation from high school, I had been given a full-ride scholarship to a university about 45 minutes from my house. And so I didn't pursue becoming a pastor. But as God has a tendency to do, he dealt with my distraction. It took away, ended the relationship with the girlfriend, took away the job, uh, and uh, really uh, put me in a place where I had no interest of going back to university. Give me some Some situations made it clear that I did not want to go back to university. Then slowly but surely, I got a new job, and uh, I enrolled in community college, and then I met a girl. It wasn't Carol. But this wasn't a romantic relationship. What I mean is I met a girl that clearly her life following Christ was vibrant, And something about her vibrant Christian life just kind of re-engaged mine after kind of falling to the side. And I learned where she went to school. And uh, after the summer was over and she went back to Northland, I thought, you know what? I I should go visit this place that is apparently full of these people like her. So I got to go visit with her mother and I arrived on campus. And once again, I can't explain it. God made it very clear that that was where I was going to go to school. He was calling me to go to Northland. Now, those are just two examples that I can think of in my Christian life where where God did something to to call me. Now, it might seem really cool, really awesome that you would have those kind of, I guess, mystical experiences. But as I've gotten older, I realize I look back now and think that was nothing more than mercy and grace to an easily distracted young man. It was many years later 
that I realized what Jesus calls me to, what God's people are called to, had always been in front of me, found in Scripture. And while I do believe God can and does have and does do special callings, those special callings never contradict, they never replace what we are called to in Scripture. We've been going through these stories in Matthew. He's given us nine stories in sets of three. And tonight, or this morning, we come to the final set of three stories. The underlying theme of all of these stories has been the power of Christ as we see him do great and mighty miracles. But as he does those things, we learn about the Savior. We learn about what kind of Savior he is. We learn about deciding to follow him. And in these last groups of stories, we are going to find out that should we decide to follow Jesus, what are we being called to? Our calling in following Jesus. Three points for you this morning. Number one, number one, Jesus calls us, if we're going to follow him, Jesus calls us to a new life. To a new life. We get two action statements here in the text. Jesus is passing on. So he is walking from one end of Capernaum to another. And as he's walking, he encounters Matthew. Matthew is sitting there at the tax booth. So both of them, for more or less, the the text is telling us, is going about their day. But, But Jesus encounters Matthew. Jesus commands Matthew, rise and follow me. And Matthew does. Now, if you remember way back a couple of years ago at the beginning of the study, I mentioned to you there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Matthew had grown up in synagogue. He clearly, in his, in his gospel, he clearly has a firm grasp on, uh, grasp on the uh, Old Testament. So he likely grew up in synagogue. But to become a tax collector really defines the idea of rebelling against what you grew up hearing. And so he made a a choice in some way or another to walk away from his faith. And there he is sitting at his tax booth. This had to be mind-bending to suddenly find himself following the Savior that he was longing for, a Savior he was called to follow. Then we get another phrase in verse 10. We know from the other uh, accounts that this house that is being referred to here where Jesus is eating is Matthew's house. So it makes sense if Matthew's a tax collector uh, and is probably a part of a very licentious lifestyle. It makes sense. This is the kind of people he's going to have at his home. And so they have a dinner at his home and it says that many tax collectors and sinners, that certain term sinners is likely meaning people of various types of sexually immoral behavior. But they're all there. And it says they're reclining with Jesus, meaning they're having a meal, having fellowship with Jesus. The Pharisees or the religious leaders see this and they have a question. Why does he do this? Why does your master eat with these kind of people? Somehow the question gets all the way to Jesus and he responds, because the sick need a doctor. And he challenges these religious leaders to consider when God says that he desires mercy more than sacrifice. And then he makes this statement, I have come to call sinners to repentance. This is followed up by some followers of John the Baptizer. Then why don't you fast? They're asking him, 
all right, oh, you get, we get what you're saying. But how come you and your disciples aren't more religious? How come you don't follow the rules, if you will? Well, Jesus answers simply, nobody fasts on a wedding day. What do you do on wedding days, church? You celebrate. And he says, I'm here. The bridegroom is here. And while I'm here, there's going to be no fasting. Now, there's coming a day. But even then, he, he turns to this analogy of new clothes and new wineskins. And he's saying, look, the, they will fast, but this is going to be something new. This is not something that's going to be poured into old clothes. It's not something that's going to be poured into old bottles. This is something new. And it doesn't fit in the old things. So he calls Matthew to a new life. He calls sinners to repentance. And he explains that what is happening here is something new. Now, church, this isn't difficult. If he's calling them to something new, what does that mean? That there, there exists something old. That there's an old life. There is an old way of doing things. Let me explain it this way. There's a very popular speaker out there nowadays by the name of Jordan Peterson. Anybody heard of him? He was a psychology professor at a university in Toronto. He got into a conflict with the Canadian government. It made him very famous. And after he got very famous, he wrote this book. It's called The Twelve Rules for Life. And it's meant here's how you can be successful. And so he says things like sit up straight. Clean your room, wear a tie, speak up. Now, none of those things are bad, are they? No. The problem is in his point, in his conclusion. He's saying, if you want to succeed, if you want to be a good person, he's putting a standard out there, what it means to be successful, what it means to be a good person. He's saying, here are the rules. In Jesus' days, uh, those rules would be things like, don't call tax collectors to be a disciple. Don't have dinner with disreputable people. Make sure you fast on a regular basis. You see, Jesus is saying, no, 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 wait a minute. This is a new life. And the Bible later uh, it says this, this new life is something greater than law keeping. It's something greater than rule keeping. And that's the explanation of the wine comment. Jesus' disciples will fast, but their fasting is going to be very different. Why do we fast? What should be the motivation of the Christian to fast? Why is it considered a new type of fasting? You say, well, they're both going hungry. Both leave you wanting a cheeseburger. What's new about it, though? You see, the fasting of the Christian, the fasting of the believer is a fast that is done because of a desire for more grace. You see, this grace that we're told is a grace that floods the earth, that it can't be contained. Jesus is saying, look, this grace, this thing that God is doing through his grace cannot be contained in old bottles. It needs, it it cannot wear the old clothes. It needs bigger bottles, newer bottles, bigger clothes, newer clothes. And so we fast... Because we want to get over sin habits. Because we've tasted the grace of salvation. So we want more grace to get through our sin habits. We fast because as a church we don't have the resources to put up a new building. But we've tasted grace. We want more grace. 
We fast because we have brothers and sisters and mothers and, and, and so forth who aren't Christian. And we've tasted grace. And we want that grace for them. You see, the, the fasting is something so very new. It's not fasting to earn. It's not fasting out of fear. It's not fasting uh, wondering if, if God cares. It's a fasting that comes from having tasted grace. And says to God, I am not going to eat because what I want to taste is more grace. So we are called to this new life, this new life that is driven forward, is understood, and is about grace. But then number two, what else are we called to? So it's this new life, but we are also called, Jesus. or number two, Jesus calls us to live by faith. He calls us to live by faith. Once again, the section starts with Jesus doing something. In this case, he's teaching. Probably in the midst of talking about these new wineskins, this ruler shows up, pleads for his daughter's life. We know from other accounts that this ruler is the head of a synagogue. His name is Jairus. And what we're to understand, like Matthew just tells us, he's a ruler. He's supposed to, you're supposed to understand here that this is somebody in high position. This is somebody uh, who would be considered blessed, well off. This is the kind of person who, more often than not in the Gospels, rejects Jesus. This is why this is mentioned. Jarius, this ruler would be seen as somebody who is more like to, uh, likely to see Jesus as a threat. A threat to his position, a threat to his power. But this ruler, who has everything, probably the closest modern example I could give you, or I could think of in my office, uh, was uh, probably a celebrity would be the closest thing. I would think of somebody like Tom Hanks. Somebody who's got all the money, got a lot of influence, fame, and for more or less, I don't, I mean, I don't know, maybe you know something about Tom Hanks, I don't. But for more or less, he seems to have a reasonable, good reputation. That's, that's this guy. The kind of person who, more often than not in the Gospels, doesn't show up to talk to Jesus. But this man has come to Jesus because his daughter is going to die. And he declares, Jesus, only you can help. It's a declaration of faith. Now, this story is interrupted because we're supposed to compare what happened with Jairus with what's about to happen with this woman. You see, we meet this woman. We're only told that she has an issue of blood for 12 years. She's got some disease. Now, the other accounts tell us that she has spent a fortune trying to solve her medical problems. Just so you know, healthcare has always been expensive. But what are you supposed to understand? What Matthew's telling us by telling us about this about her as somebody who has this sickness is now we have a woman who has nothing. And she's not there. He's making sure to understand she's not at the bottom of society because of a choice. She's not been a prostitute. She's not been married five times. She's not possessed by a demon. She's simply sick. A sickness she can't control. A sickness that has taken over her life. And she says to herself, if all I do is touch his garment, I'll be made well. It's an expression of faith. Jesus sees her. says to her, your faith has made you well. 
The text then returns to the story of the man's daughter. Jesus shows up. What we're understanding here when he says the minstrels were already there is the idea that there were in those days professional mourners. People that you would pay to show up to look like your death was a big deal. Uh, and so these people, there are, the, the mourners are already there, the minstrels are already playing, the relatives have already shown up. It's long past any reasonable expectation that anything's going to happen. But Jesus enters the scene. He says she's sleeping. I really, mean, I really think this is meant to be a rebuke to those who had already gathered. They'd already moved on beyond the idea that in, there was any hope here. But he puts everyone out, takes her by the hand, and she lives. The things that we are supposed to understand here, the details I want you to understand, is that in both cases, their faith always preceded their healing. Their faith wasn't bought with the miracle. This was a situation, both of these expressions are not the idea that this is one last shot. This is the idea that they went to Jesus saying that they knew he could. They knew he could deal with this. The question in their mind was whether or not he would. And what we're supposed to understand here is that this life, faith must come first. And what I mean by that is it's not allowed to share space with anything else. How many of you have ever had a problem? Just a problem. A few, maybe. How many of you know people with problems? few more of those right how are we supposed to respond to this well the idea here is what you are not called to be if you're called to a life of faith what are you not called then to you're not called to be a fix it all not called to fix it all not called to know it all You're not called to be all, to end all, to be everything everybody needs and everywhere everybody needs. You see, faith can't share space with somebody who thinks that they already can fix it. Faith can't share space with people who already think they already know it. Faith can't share space when they already think that they can do it. I mean, the Bible says if we're double-minded, we're already wayward. If we're going to God with prayers about saying, Lord, we'd like you to do this, but we do it with a plan B in the back of our mind, the Bible literally says those are the kind of prayers God does not listen to. There are many things in our lives that will not be solved outside of the Savior interceding. And so there is this call to faith. But the second thing, the other detail I'd want you to note here is that we do get two examples of somebody at the very top of society and the somebody at the very bottom of society. And we note that the calling of faith is the same to both of them. No matter what you are, what you've done, what is happening in your life, you don't get a special program. God does not have special dispensation to you. You could be a nice person, you could be a wealthy person, you can be an attractive person. You're still called to a life of faith. You could uh, be drug addicted, you could be infirmed, you could be living with somebody who's not your spouse, you could have a, a weight problem, 
you're still called to a life of faith. It is not easier or harder. It's not ineffectual because of where you are. The calling is the same. I'll give you an example. James gives us a good picture of what this means. He tells us about the life of faith for the rich man and the poor man. The rich man is called to be generous. He's not to give in to the temptation to hoard out of fear because he's afraid he's going to become poor. The poor man is to work and not give in to the temptation to covet and scheme and steal from the rich. Both men are called to a life of faith. And these two pictures, Jarius and this woman, really do offer a great picture, a perfect illustration of this call to a life of faith. It starts when we put our faith in Christ for our salvation, but it doesn't end there. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to be called to a life of faith. And then lastly, number three, if we're going to follow Jesus, not only are we called to this new life and to this life by faith, but then number three, Jesus calls us to a life of ministry. To a life of ministry. We come full circle. At the beginning of chapter 8, we met a Savior that was full of compassion. Then we move to choosing to follow Jesus. And now we end these series of stories by seeing Jesus have compassion. He's had compassion for an outsider, for the lost. Here he has compassion on these people who don't have a shepherd. Well, first of all, in the text, we meet these two blind men. Be very easy to go right past the story and miss what is here. If they're blind, what is true? They can't. What have they not seen then? What have they not seen? They haven't seen any evidence that Jesus can do this. They've never seen anything. Yet. They cry out for Jesus to do something. Jesus calls them to himself, and he asks the question, do you believe that I can do this? They say yes, and, he, and they're healed. Then we meet a demon-possessed man who is mute. What does it mean to be mute? What can't you do? You can't speak. What did these two blind men just do? They cried out. But this guy, he can't say anything, and he's brought there by other people. He's, he's demon-possessed. Jesus heals that man and the people marvel and the Pharisees go, this guy has to have demonic powers. And then we move to a group of people who come and Jesus is preaching the gospel. He's proclaiming the gospel. And people are showing up wanting to be healed. Uh, it is clearly Matthew's intending for us to understand the relationship between the gospel and our need for salvation. So he's preaching the gospel. People are coming to have the, to be healed both physically and spiritually. But note he says he has compassion because they don't have a shepherd. They're wandering. And then he turns to his disciples. He gives this great picture. He says, look, the harvest is great. It's ready. But the workers are few. Pray the Lord would send more to harvest. And then in verse 1 of chapter 10, what, is, what does he do? He sends them out to harvest. So there are several things we need to gather up here as a Christian. First thing the blind men teach us, the center of the, the ministry is a need to believe and to follow Jesus. 
The people that we minister to, their first and primary need is to believe and to follow Jesus. I like people getting baptized. I like people becoming members of First Baptist. But their first need is to believe and to follow Jesus, not to keep a set of rules, not to act a particular way. And we realize that everything we do as a church, the foundation must be the gospel. And while it's not the only thing, it is the most central thing. Another thing we need to learn here is this. We cannot leave people to themselves. This mute man, this demon-possessed man, he couldn't speak out. He couldn't call Jesus to himself. He had to bring people who brought him to Jesus. One of the most unique things about American history is this. Is that for a good time in our culture, probably about 150 years, we had a soft undertone of the gospel in our nation, understanding, seeing things through gospel vision. And that has a lot to do with our Purit- the Puritan influence in the founding of this nation. There's a general, there was for a long time a general awareness of sin, a general awareness for the need of salvation. And so for many years, for probably 150 years, all churches had to do was simply open their doors. All they had to do was have tent meetings. All they had to do was have special events, and people would show up. But let me understand, let me understand that that 150-year history of America is an outlier of the 2,000 years of church history. What has been normal in the other 1,900 and 900 and uh, 1,900 and whatnot number that would be, what has been normal is Christians reaching out, not inviting in, and Christians reaching out even to people who have made no expression of interest. We cannot leave people to themselves. Number three, the third application you would find here is this. It's a reminder that our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers are lost. That's the picture there of sheep wandering around without a shepherd. You ever seen people wander in their life? Moving from one romantic relationship to another? The one who's always waiting for their ship to come in? Always sending you a Facebook message about this new thing they found? Looking for some sort of identity. Maybe you know people who've tried to make the money. They've tried the drugs. They've tried the pleasure. They try to find directions in careers and in sports and some of them even in religion. But the fact remains, they're lost. And when you see things, when you see it that way, when you look at the people around you and you see their wanderings like a sheep without a shepherd, you realize they're lost and you realize the amount of work that needs to be done. If we sat down together, I guarantee you, we could come up with a list of a thousand people between all of us that we know who are lost. The work is overwhelming. I just told you we need to reach out. And then you look out and you go, there are just too many. A few of us said that on Wednesday night when we saw all the sparkies. There's just too many. (laughs) But then we pray. Lord, we need more help. So we have the gospel. We have our neighbors. 
We have work to be done here. We are seeing that we are called to a life of, of ministry. But what verse 1 of chapter 10 shows us is this, is that we're not, it's, it's not done by our power. The, the verse expressly says that Jesus empowered them. And so we realize it's not about attendance numbers or the amount of money we have in the bank as a church. It's about his power. What has been the point through all nine stories is to meet a Savior full of power. We are following a Jesus full of power. And that the calling he puts into our life comes from his power. It's always been about his power. So if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to be called to put in the time, the effort, the money, the social standing, to doing the work of the ministry. And be reminded that the power to do this work will not come from natural things, but from Christ. And then you start thinking about the fact that means that I'm called to this life of faith. I can't be it all and fix it all and do it all. But I have to live by faith. The only way, Hebrews tells us, that we can even please God, that we believe that he is and the rewarder of those who seek him. And this is true for those at the top, at the middle, at the bottom of society. And a reminder that we are called to a a new life. To put away the old ways of trying to gain God's favor, favor. Trying and living and working for God out of fear. But working and living and being driven forward by the reality we have tasted grace. And we have been freed by grace. And so we want to love him and worship him and follow him. And embrace these callings because of this grace. A new life that leads to good works. Because we have tasted and seen that God is good and we want more. This is what you were called to if you follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... These stories we have been told, being reminded about who you are, the one who can restore, the one who can protect, the one who saves, the calling to follow you, will we follow you, even though it's going to be dangerous, even though there might be times where it's going to end in persecution, and Father, the as we follow these callings in our life, this calling to new life, to this calling of faith, this calling to minister. I pray we'd be obedient in all of these things, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.